And while I think it's great as a culture for us to, you know, push success and hard work, we do have to acknowledge that you need food, water, air, you need sleep. Without it, you're going to pay a price. And ironically, you pay a price in your productivity, memory, learning, if you don't get sufficient sleep. My name is Kevin Brookhauser, and this is the Future Ready Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Mark Rosekind, the Chief Safety Innovation Officer at the startup up in Silicon Valley, Zooks, heavily invested and involved in the science behind autonomous vehicles and autonomous mobility. Um, but I talked to Dr. Rosekind mostly about sleep today and the importance of maintaining healthy sleep habits. Uh, one of the things that I loved about our conversation is that he had some really good news to spread that that getting sleep is is kind of like a superpower that if you want to increase your productivity you want to increase your mood you basically want to perform everything that you want to get out of life having enough sleep is one of the critical keys to maintaining that healthy and happy lifestyle and it's something that that many of us can get and are not getting yet and so he charges us all to prioritize sleep in our lives and and tells us about how we can make that happen enjoy the show <laughs> well well great i'm I really i know your time's really valuable i know you're a busy guy and i want to um first really uh, express my gratitude for taking the time to do this. I, I know that not all of our parents will get to uh, attend the evening event, but I wanted to share what, what, uh, what expertise you bring to the table with them as well. Yeah, please, you're doing this. Oh, great. Um, so first, my, my kind of a general question is, why are you so interested in sleep? <laughs> when I was a sophomore in college, I took a course from uh, Dr. William DeMent. And Dr. DeMent is one of the people that helped discover REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, mm -hmm. actually helped coin the term. Oh, wow. And so this was in the mid 70s. And it was like the coolest class that you could take all about it's called sleep and dreams. Cool. And I was a pre-med at the time and thought, man, this is just like the neatest thing. <laughs> uh, he used to joke about it. it was so new. There's a sleep disorder with your name on it out there, you know. <laughs> Um, and I ended up getting involved in research, uh, literally taking courses and stuff. So as an undergraduate, I got to be a TA for a course and participate in research, had my first publications, um, and it ended up redirecting my entire career, basically. And instead of going to medical school, I ended up a PhD so I could do research and changed everything. But it all started, and I think this is really important for an academic facility, you know, whether it's a high school, and you teachers need to understand that, you know, yeah. classes inspire people and can literally set the direction of their careers. And that happened sophomore in college, and I'm still doing it. And it took a teacher to do it. That's exactly right. Uh, a really passionate, articulate, fun guy, um, you know, in this case. And that's why I say I, I don't think you folks should ever underestimate the importance you have in students' lives. Well, that's that's really uh, well. It's great great to hear hear from you. I I spent a lot of time thinking about how technology is going to re replace some aspects of what we do in, in education, but uh, I don't think uh, computers are ever going to erase the inspirational value of, you know, humans together talking about interesting topics and, and creating together. Yes, totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. 
So let's let's talk more about sleep. You know, when we, we think of uh, living a healthy life, we often the first things that come to mind are, are nutrition and exercise. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that we should elevate sleep up to that level, and, and if so, why? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things that's absolutely critical for, pe- for people to understand, food, water, air, they are critical for human survival. Mm-hmm. So is sleep. Hmm. And literally without sleep, you would die within a couple weeks. So you're talking like foundation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs here. I'm talking food, water, air. Yeah. I'm talking <laughs> hierarchy of basic physiological existence. Right, right. And, and, huh. and why that's important is because, well, nutrition's critical for a long, healthy life. Yeah. And if you don't eat, food's important, you know. Um, exercise, yeah, that's good. It's, but again, food, water, air, sleep. Belongs huh. on that. It is like vital. And so nutrition, exercise, sleep should absolutely be part of that axis that you think about. The most important things for health, longevity, safety, performance, sleep absolutely needs equal status. And yet sleep doesn't seem to have, you know, living a a healthy lifestyle with regard to um, healthy sleep patterns, it doesn't have, well, actually, someone who gets a lot of sleep sometimes can be stigmatized, especially in a, in a culture that, that values hard work and, and uh, putting in long hours in the day. So this is the irony yeah. of all of this, which makes somebody who you know, actually works in the sleep field crazy <laughs> because our society negates the importance of sleep. And, and you already said it, um, you know, in, in many, many environments, um, it's a badge of courage to go without sleep. Right. You know, you're the one who's going to get ahead and do better without sleep. The reality is from all the science we have, it's exactly the opposite that without sleep or getting too little sleep, uh, disrupting your internal body clock, you pay a very, very high price for sleep loss and disruption of our body clock. What's interesting is that the societal attitudes are totally off. (laughs) And it's interesting, you know, so uh, live in Silicon Valley, everybody here thinks, you know, Silicon Valley invented the I'll sleep when I'm dead. (laughs) Right, right. And it ends up, um, the first person that I know of who said that was Ben Franklin in 1757. (laughs) There will be sleeping enough in the grave. (laughs) And I point that out because, you know, 300 plus years ago, uh, not quite, but what is it, 260 years plus ago, um, basically, you know, America was built on that, right? We don't like the taxes, we'll go somewhere else and we'll work hard and and get whatever we want and succeed. That's right. And and while I think it's great as a culture for us to, you know, push success and hard work, we do have to acknowledge that you need food, water, air, you need sleep. Without it, you're going to pay a price. And ironically, you pay a price in your productivity, memory, learning if you don't get sufficient sleep. So as much as people love to talk about that, every one of those people that, you know, doesn't get enough sleep also has a story where they paid for it. Yeah, if you want if if you really do want to put in good hours, then you also have to put in good sleep hours as well. Absolutely. And I think what's so interesting, and again I've been around this for thirty plus years, is having worked with Olympic athletes, special operations forces, astronauts, pilots they've cared about this forever. They get, well, 
Yeah, they their lives depend in. upon it. Yeah, that's exactly right. They, you know, it's, their life depends upon it in safety sensitive positions, and they're all looking for an edge to do better. And they, <laughs> so they realize that if you, well, if you don't manage your sleep, you're going to pay for it. Right, right. Is is all sleep? Um, I mean, is it just quantifiable? Is it the number of hours per day? Is that how you measure quality sleep, or is it REM hours, or what's what's a good way to to measure the 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 optimal amount and type of sleep you get. And that's really important because it's both quantity and quality that count. Uh huh. And so quantity matters. And for adults, the average is about an eight hour sleep need, not what people get, but the right. physiological need is around eight hours, but there's a range from around seven to nine hours. Okay. That you normally see, um, for kids up until the early 20s, it's actually about nine hours. Oh nine and a quarter hours is, again, the physiological need, not what they get, but what they need. Okay, so, so, the, so well, let's spend a little more time on that distinction between sure. what they get and what they need, because I, I, I think we need to get that point across really clearly. Sure, and, and the reason I make that distinction is because um, most kids, you know, say teenagers, are averaging around six and a half hours of sleep. So when you say need, you don't mean need to survive because obviously these kids are surviving. What do you mean by they're, need? So they're surviving at the point that they're alive. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but when you think about what they need to be healthy, right. to learn, to perform at their best, to be safe, they're not getting enough. They're getting uh -huh. you know, two and a half hours less than they need. And so uh -huh. why that's important is because it means they might be surviving, they're still going to class, but when you look at the measures of academic scores, absenteeism, athletic achievements, et cetera. Um, and you measure, you know, kids that get more sleep, they do better. Grades are better, SATs are better, athletic performance is better. Um, they're in class, not absent. Uh, it's absolutely clear that with getting the sleep that you need, around eight hours for adults, around nine hours for kids, um, that getting what you need gives you optimal performance, safety, health, and mood. And okay, so that's quantity and nine hours. I think uh, some of our listeners are, are laughing right now, um, hearing you suggest that based upon the uh, the you know what the, the the busy lives that, that many of these kids live. You know, they're they're super scheduled. They've got lots of homework. They're trying to fit some family time in there. Um, let's yes. let let's go back to that that dilemma. And but but I do want to. Uh, cover the quality of sleep. How do you how do you measure quality sleep? Sure, let's do that, and then we'll go back to the whole yeah. societal issue again. Sure. So the quality side. So quantity is important, just sort of for the total amount of sleep you get. Yeah. Um, and then the quality is important because if it's taking you a long time to fall asleep, or you're waking up too much, the sleep's disrupted a lot. Um, it's light sleep, etc. If, if the quality is disrupted, it can be just as bad as not getting sufficient sleep. Hmm. So that's why it's not just the number of hours you get, but it's getting good quality sleep in a good environment um, that's going to matter for really optimal sleep. So that's why I'm just I'm really highlighting that it's not just the number of hours you get, but it's getting good quality sleep when you need it. Um, that's really important. And do you find that people are good at assessing? the quality of sleep that they're getting on a given night or, you know, I've, I've, I've never tried them, but I've heard about, you know, you can measure your sleep with Fitbits or get an app in your mattress or something. <laughs> right. So this is really important. 
Um, and one of the slides I'd love to show actually is a NASA study where you ask people how alert are you and then physiologically measured how alert they were. Yeah. And, and there's a big discrepancy. <laughs> and the same thing is true of sleep at night. Okay. When you ask people, they, over end up, they overestimate how long it takes to get to sleep, underestimate how much sleep they got. Interesting. And so our subjective experience is very different than objectively how much sleep we're actually getting. And so that's important. I always tell people it means, uh, again, most people underestimate how much sleep they actually get. So the next time you have a really bad night, it's probably not as bad as you thought. On the other hand, as you're pointing out, all the new wearables that people can get that help to track sleep are very important. The challenge is they're not all very good. <laughs> and so, you know, if you don't really have an accurate measure, then eh, it's almost as good as guessing. So, you know, people's subjective experience, uh, their impressions of how they sleep aren't very reliable. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, some of the technology also isn't very reliable. If you find a good one, I think it's going to be great that people are starting to pay attention to this because it is a way to get a better sense of how many hours at least that you're getting at night, maybe quality as well. I find that if I'm, I'm doing something like that, paying too much attention to my quality of sleep, I, I tend to think about sleep so much that I can't fall asleep. It's, it's better for me to think about something different. Well, uh, just so you know, the number one way to create insomnia in anybody yeah. is tell them that they're being measured or observed tonight. <laughs> right, or, or, right. or for teachers, like your grade tomorrow is based on, you know, how much sleep you get tonight. <laughs> it's the number one way to ruin their sleep, basically. Right. And, and to your point, one of the strategies we use for people that ruminate a lot before sleep is called worry time. Uh -huh. And you basically say, not in the bedroom, but go somewhere else. Make a list of all the stuff you're concerned about. Leave it in a drawer outside the bedroom. So when you're in the, the bedroom and in your bed, all you're, you're really just focusing on being able to get to sleep and stay asleep, which means relaxation exercises, um, different kinds of cognitive relaxation techniques, um, whatever it is to help you stay relaxed and get to sleep. Well, since you're talking about that, let's dig in a little deeper. You know, a lot of our, a lot of just humans in 2018 are going to bed with their phones or with some sort of glowing screens and you know the kind of the running joke at our house is we're we're graduating from a big screen to a small screen as time <laughs> yeah. goes on through throughout the night um what what have you um concluded in your research uh, as far as how these these screens just in the light that they emit um, aside from how they make us worry about things, but is there a physiological reaction that prevents us from getting healthy sleep? Yes, and, and actually the two big physiological factors we're going to talk about are sleep yeah. and our internal body clock. Okay. So let's go just for a moment. The internal body clock we have in our brain knows what time it is by light. Mm -hmm. So that's light goes through the eyes into mm -hmm. the the clock, which is deep in our brain. Uh, and so, yes, if you're, you know, in front of a screen that's putting off light right before bed, that's sending mixed signals to your clock and mm. is a way to basically screw up your schedule. Mm. And so from just a circadian health side, body clock side, um, that's why people are talking about, um, you know, blue light and changing the light on screens. Yeah. Um, on an Apple iPhone, it's a night shift. That's right. actually quite important because otherwise, right before bed, when you should be getting more dark, getting light can actually disrupt your internal body clock. 
So this technology technology actually seems to work. It's not hocus pocus. That's correct. That's correct. And it's really great to finally see that um, basically being much more widespread. But the other part, as we were talking about with sleep, is you know your your brain is going to be thinking about what you did today, what yeah. you got to do tomorrow, and so as we were just talking about. Uh, rumination is one of the most significant ways that people have disrupted sleep and they can't get to actually fall asleep. Yeah. And so that's the other thing about the technology is too much mental activity or stimulation before bed. Um, and that can disrupt your ability to get to sleep or potentially your sleep through the night. So again, the devices can both disrupt sleep and absolutely, depending on the light you're getting, disrupt your internal body clock as well. Right. But even if you do have that app turned on where it turns the, the light amber, uh, it, you still could be reading something online that keeps you up all night. And that's the point, that's a, which is that's it's not just problem. one. It's yeah, it's both the sleep and the clock. So, so some what, people disrupt both. <laughs> right. Some people, right. Now use, some people use the technology to help them deal with one of those factors, but they yeah. still disrupt it because they're, you know, watching or listening or doing other things. And in fact, right. the reason I always bring that up when I talk about pre-bedtime rituals, because people love to say, it's like, is it okay to watch TV or listen to music? And it ends up, they're fine. It's just the content. So you've got the light part, which is not an issue for a book necessarily, but the issue is more the content. And if you do things that are too active for your brain, that's gonna make it harder to fall asleep and may disrupt the quality of sleep. Right, right. Yeah, I find that, that I. I do, uh, I sometimes listen to a podcast, but it's got to be one that I, I don't care about too much. That's it. I, I tell people, read the tax code, the driver <laughs> right. handbook, right. you know, stuff you know that are yawners that's going to, you know, make you sleepy. Uh, you don't, I tell people, it's like, you know, that book you wanted to read finally came, you know, got delivered and you're on the first chapter. It's like, that's not a good thing to start reading before no. bed. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, so um, using uh, – oh, one thing I I do want to say is uh, one thing I recommend to parents who ask me about uh, technology and education and, you know, we we ask students to all have a device here at this school. um, But but I tell parents, you have permission to take that device away from your children – when you think they should be sleeping. Because even for me, those devices are so seductive that it's, uh, you know, we, we could end up staying up all night just staring at these devices. So I, I recommend throwing them in a dresser drawer during the evening. I don't know, have you, have you, have you heard of an, a different, or a, a strategy that works for you? Yeah, and I'm gonna give you a larger context for this. My wife's a pediatrician. Yeah. Oh, and one of the things she loves to t- tell parents, especially if teenagers is, you know, your job is to be a parent. Yeah. <laughs> so setting limits on your kids is okay. <laughs> right. And, and as much as we want them, you know, to grow up and be autonomous and independent, etc., you're still a parent and you're their parent. So yeah. setting these kind of limits are actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, and I'm saying that because it's interesting. We did a bunch of, I did some school education stuff at a high school uh, here in the area and we had a uh, quote expert panel. They were a bunch of seniors, and it was amazing that the one thing they all agreed on was having their parents set a bedtime. Interesting. And seniors that's in freaked, high school. That freaked all the parents. Yeah, and, <laughs> and you know we're talking a pretty high-powered school up here. Right. And, you know the parents were in the audience were freaked out. 
you know, wait, I'm supposed to let my seniors do what they need to do and make their own decisions. It's like, you got to be kidding. These honor roll kids, you know, going to these great colleges are telling me set a bedtime. It goes back to my wife's comment, which is, you know, you're the parent. You can right. set limitations specifically related to devices. Absolutely. You want to say an hour before bed, two hours before bed, stop screen time. Yeah. Don't take them in the bedroom. And again, parents, be parents. It's okay to set limits on that. It doesn't mean they can't study still or read things or work on problems or talk about stuff. Uh, sure. Again, study can be done without these devices. Um, but, you know, they, within one to two hours of bed, really should not be part of that pre-sleep ritual. Well, and okay, so let's talk about that. The kids often end up studying pretty late into the night, and it's an attempt to you know, get an edge on academics. But, you know, you, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, uh, sacrificing s sleep for study is actually counterproductive if, if you do want to succeed academically. So how do, how do we um, kind of make those choices, uh, assuming there are times when students just have to make a choice between s studying and, and being better prepared and getting some sleep? Is it always, does sleep, should, should sleep always win? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and let's go to, you know, there are two different kinds of sleep. Yeah. Rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep when you dream. Right. Non-REM sleep. Oh, how creative those scientists were, right? Non-rapid eye movement sleep. <laughs> but REM sleep, REM sleep is actually critical to memory consolidation. And so this gets all to all about learning. And, and the studies are absolutely clear. And there's just hundreds of them now, which is if you study and trying to learn and get sleep, you will do better in whatever the test is after sleep than if you didn't have that sleep. Right. Absolutely clear. And so you need that sleep to have memory consolidation, to be able to recall it in the morning when you need it. And what I point out is besides the memory aspect, you know, with sufficient sleep, it means that you'll be reacting faster, thinking clearer, problem solving better, better memory recall, all that stuff is benefiting. And everybody who thinks that they got to just jam that material in is sacrificing all those other skills and optimal performance by maybe having a couple of other, a couple of facts that they wouldn't have had. But their overall performance is going to be degraded, if not impaired, because of the sleep loss. And well, so that's why I say pretty much, pretty much every time sleep, sleep. should win out <laughs> over cramming for a test. And I, I have to say to, to students who, who think they may not be ready for a test, the, the truth is you don't really know what is in your brain the night before a test because you probably have a lot of that material that you're going to need to recall, but you won't be able to because there's a lot that we gather subconsciously that we remember just that, that, that we aren't conscious of. Um, but but you, won't, you definitely won't be able to recall it if you don't have enough sleep right and in fact sleep will get you access to it if you don't sleep literally forget it <laughs> literally and yeah. the, the other thing i want to mention is is you're you know you're um an executive in a startup company in, in silicon valley and you know i'm kind of curious about what is really valued in that kind of culture is it having a brain full of recall or is it the ability to solve problems on the fly and be able to think critically um which you know, and, and not just not just filling your head full of, of facts. Well, and we've known this since the existence of the Internet. 
which is just having facts is not success anymore. Yeah. Because with the internet, you know, it's one search away from any fact you need to know about anything <laughs> right. in the world. Um, and so everybody now in our knowledge economy values problem solving, thoughtful, pervasive thinking. You know, these yeah. are the things that matter. Um, and I think what's interesting, we should go back now is an appropriate time because whether it's, you know, the kids laughing about nine hours sleep <laughs> right. or the parents saying they got too much homework, they're never going to do that. You know, the reality is that this is a cultural thing, again, that we are confronted with, that we've got too much to do. And so let's cheat on sleep. That's my way to jam more hours in the day. Mm -hmm. But it's absolutely no, no question, any way you measure it, that without the sleep you need, you will pay. You will pay in your performance, your safety, your health, your mood. If you get the sleep you need, you get the benefit of that in all those different areas. Our culture says otherwise, and it's interesting because everyone sleeps, they think they're an expert. And so, mm -hmm. oh, I'm good with five hours. No, you're not. And in <laughs> fact, what's interesting is if we go measure these people, their objective performance demonstrates they're not doing very well. So again, people's experience is off. Their sort of report is off from what's actually going on. We did a study with a bunch of uh, business travelers for Air New Zealand, and we took, we were measuring actual sleep as well as their performance, and we took the people that rated themselves as the highest performers. In this case, we're looking at jet lag. And the highest performers actually had an average 20% damage in their performance throughout the trip. So, wow. you know, these are people thinking they're doing percent, not 1% or 2%, 20%. And very simple, straightforward performance things. So, you know, people think they're doing great, and they are not. And again, because our culture doesn't value sleep, people are paying this price in all kinds of different environments. And in fact, in my talk, I'm actually going to start with safety numbers because there's so many crashes that our society literally pays for because we think sleep is unimportant. Hmm. And literally people are giving up their lives because they act like sleep is not important. So go to bed earlier. Uh is one way to do it. Sleep in later is probably a lot of uh, teenagers' preference. And, and we're hearing a lot of, uh, at least I hear a lot of talk in the education community that later start times is one, uh, one strategy that schools can take. Uh, do you have a sense of what a, an ideal time to, for school to start would be? Sure. And, and there are actually a few different questions in there. Yeah. So let me actually address a few of them. One that what teenagers especially need to know is they have a really hard time because they need around nine hours of sleep and their internal body clock starts actually running late, hmm. which means they have and there's a fancy name for it, it's a delayed sleep phase syndrome where their body clock starts wanting to go to bed later and later. So not sleeping. Let's give nine hours, not sleeping 10 until 7 in the morning, 10 p.m. to 7. Their body clock wants them to go to bed at midnight and get up at 9 a.m. Right. So when they go to bed at 10, they can't fall asleep. And then when they get up at 7 a.m., they're two hours sleep deprived. Right. Okay. So they have that circadian problem, that biological clock problem that they just built in are starting to lay their clock during adolescence. So that's one of the reasons if you want to get them what they need, 
plus pay attention to the change in their body clock while most our time is being discussed. And now uh, it's pretty much acknowledged that later start times, American Academy of Pediatrics says not later, I'm sorry, nothing earlier than 8.30 a.m. Yep. National Sleep Foundation, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, all of these about say, now, why do more schools do this anyway? It's so interesting, but it's athletic events. Yep. <laughs> um, and usually the bus system. So the bus schedule sometimes dictates when schools start. And, and the parents who are like, oh, what am I going to do if the kid's out early? And how do I? And one of the things I always talk about is we're talking about the health and education of your kids, right. not about, right? So if you want to maximize that, and, and so there are many, in fact, there's a school system in Edina, Minnesota, that was the first school system to change to a later school start time. Now we've got, got I don't know, 15 years of them. Hundreds of schools have changed. The data are overwhelming that basically later school start times have better grades, better SATs, better athletic, literally championships and things, fewer car crashes in vicinity of the school related to those adolescents. Um, there's no question. The biggest concern besides the schedule stuff, oh, the kids will just stay up later. Well, it ends yeah. up kids are averaging about an hour more sleep when they go to a later school start time. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. There'll be exceptions to all of these things, sure. but overall, um, the kids are sleeping more, and pretty much all the data are going in the direction you would want to see. Oh, that's that's amazing. So, uh, I think you would get a fair number of teenagers in support of your argument, uh, maybe some teachers as well. Um, but it's really, I mean, the, the, the science is pretty conclusive that... Uh, Giving those kids hours in the after or in the in the mornings, a little more morning sleep, just has all the benefits. It's it's like a miracle, seriously. I mean, the data, um, the school districts that decide to measure things, grade point averages or SAT scores or athletic scores or whatever, right. are always amazed about how much better they are. And because nobody changes school start time without a big battle. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes. And just because it affects so many different things. And that's why I say it's usually the bus schedule and the athletic schedules that are the yeah. big things everybody talks about. Um, and yet when they make the transition and there are ways to handle all of these, that's what I'm telling you, 10, 15 years now, school district's been doing this. Um, and so it's not like, you know, it can't be done. done. It's just it's a right. problem to be solved. And on the other side, in fact, some years ago, um, before I went to Washington, so I was in Washington for about seven years. And uh, before I went there, uh, Bill DeMent, Dr. DeMent, who's at Stanford still, and I were working with this local school and did a bunch of education over a couple of years. And then in the third year, they decided not just the school, but the district decided to change all of the school start times. Just amazing. Wow. So while I'm in Washington, I came back and, and at my kid's school was asked to give a talk to the parents. It had been many years, so I gave a talk. But the woman who's letting me in the auditorium well, my, my, one of my kids goes here, my other kid goes to Menlo Atherton, <laughs> and, you know, they change the school start times there. Oh, my God, she loves it. She's just just blossoming. She's done a great job. Wow. I mean, she had no idea who she's talking to because, <laughs> you know, Dr. Dement and I were the ones who may, helped them make that change years ago. <laughs> but I'm thinking, you know, it's an N of one, but here's this mom just thinking, oh, school start time, because where my kids were just recently changed but hadn't at this time. And this woman is going on and on and on about how great, you know, her daughter has flourished with this change in school start time. Because it was somewhere in the middle 
you know, it's like she'd been at the school and was suffering. And then all of a sudden the school start time changed and all of a sudden she's sleeping more. Her mood is better. She's doing better in classes. You know, she's not falling asleep in the first period. Um, it was just absolutely amazing. So the data are absolutely there. And anecdotally, when you actually talk to parents, it's there as well. But it's just overcoming uh, cultural entrenchment and just inertia on that. Okay, so and, we and talked don't, to- And don't underestimate it. You know, yeah. that, that's the thing. People go in saying, oh, look at the data. We should change. Those are very <laughs> powerful voices. Right. You know, the athletic schedule, the bus schedule, those, you know, you can't ignore and think, oh, this will be easy. Like, no way. I don't know anyone yeah. who's ever had an easy time trying to change <laughs> a school start time. Okay. We've talked about kind of physiological health and we've talked about uh, academic and learning benefits of getting healthy sleep. What about uh, mental health? We're, we're seeing, you know, more and more concern about depression and anxiety is there any sort of relationship between having healthy uh sleep habits and um mental health a hundred percent relationship yeah so when sleep is disrupted and uh kids are getting less sleep than they need or again their clock is disrupted then they get more depressed and they get anxious and there's you know often a chicken and egg problem Mm-hmm. A lot of kids are stressed out anyway in, in school, and that can disturb their sleep. But the so more the fe- dis- feedback loop there, absolutely. And so we absolutely know though that disturbed sleep can create anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've seen this where literally just you know think about it: a kid who needs nine hours is getting six and a half. If they start even getting eight or eight and a half, let alone the nine, they're like a brand new kid. Wow! Wow! And so. And I think it's important for parents to realize, especially parents of teenagers, it's not just depression, anxiety. We're talking about teenage mood, you know, right, which right. is a challenge in its own right. But when they get more sleep, man, it's so much easier to manage them. And that's why I say you talk about safety. It's literally life and death and car crashes and stuff, performance on athletics and school, et cetera, um, their health overall. Mood, you know, affects all of them, Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think whether it's the parents or the kids, yeah, to realize the sleep. And that's why I keep bringing those up. Good sleep means you get a chance for optimal safety, health, performance, and mood. And there's almost nothing else you can do as a human that's going to help you optimize in all four of those important areas. God, it's, it's like it's a, it's a superpower. It is. Absolutely it is. Huh. And it's, again, that's why it's so ironic that we're having to battle with people to tell them it's, you know, how important it is. Don't right, cheat on right. it. Go for it. But yeah, just dealing with, you know, moody teenagers, a, a, a good solution is providing more time to sleep. You know, I've got, I don't have teenagers. I've got i I've got a two year old and a four year old. And <laughs> if, if either of them are acting cranky, we obviously say, Oh, we need some, they need to go to sleep. They're fussy. Yeah. Um, but you know, I get the same way myself. If I don't get enough sleep, I get grumpy. <laughs> It's a human thing, you know, right, right. And that's just it. Food, water, air, sleep. You know, if you're not getting it, you're paying for it. All right. Let's talk about naps. Um, You know, we've got uh, the I've I've heard that the kind of a cool thing in Silicon Valley these days is having a a place where where you can go and take take a fiver, get, get some get a nap in the middle of the day and that people are finding that they're able to increase their productivity by having a some midday sleep. What's your what's your take on the nap situation? So this one, uh, firsthand knowledge. Uh, I'm a former NASA scientist, used to run the fatigue countermeasures program at NASA. 
yeah. here at NASA Ames. And so one of the studies I'm most known for, actually, was a study we did with pilots, cockpit of 747s. And let me just tell you what the, what the outcomes were. A 26-minute nap, and, and just a little bit more background, these were pilots, 747s flying between uh, Hawaii and Japan. We wired them all up, so we're recording their brain activity. They're doing objective performance tests. Um, and these, if they're flying 747s, they must be the top pilots around. Yeah, and, and yeah. again, these are commercial pilots with yeah. passengers in the back. Okay. And uh, the bottom line was a 26-minute nap improved alertness by 54%, and performance by 34%. These are objective measurements. 26-minute nap, 54% improvement in physiological alertness, and the performance was improved by 34%. So I often ask people who, and we started talking about this, is, you know, a lot of people think if you nap, you're stupid, dumb, and lazy. (laughs) Right. And it ends up, guess what? A nap boosts your performance by 34%. Like, what other strategy do you have that's legal um, (laughs) that's actually going to give you that kind of performance boost? And there is nothing. So it's yeah, a very, very amazing. powerful strategy. And shorter is better. So again, we gave them a 40-minute nap opportunity. They slept for 26 minutes. Uh, repeated that about eight years later with emergency department physicians and nurses. Same thing. Slept about 25 minutes. Got over a 30% boost in performance. A nap is a very powerful strategy to boost alertness. Ashes, it's kind of time to stop joking about naps and like start taking them really seriously, huh? Yeah, and just like everything else, the culture, you know, degrades them. Yeah. But the really smart ones, Winston Churchill was a big napper. Yeah. Um, a lot of athletes, we just had the Olympics. I've worked with some of those folks. Um, so many of them nap. Um, and, in fact, uh, one of my favorite, I worked with Apollo Ono before Torino. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite lines that he talked about was, you can only train as hard as you can recover. <laughs> and so a lot of that is to sleep at night. But it also means your ability to get that afternoon nap if you need it before you do some kind of, you know, evening or other sort of training. Right, so right, naps right. Are, are a great strategy. you got all the equipment with you. It's pretty straightforward to do. Um, and there's almost nothing more powerful. Wow, that's cool. I've got some students. Um, I, I, I teach a class where we uh, it's a combination of a computer programming class, but also a, a product development class. And, and a couple of students are working on a uh, on a nap pod. So they, they envision of creating something that they might install somewhere on campus where students could get some space and sound isolation uh, and try to encourage people to take that break that, that boosts their performance so much. Do you have any suggestions for their design as they, um, as they kind of work on what this thing would look like and what kind of features it would have? Sure. You know, the first thing is controlling the environment. This is yeah. true of anything, but especially naps. You need it quiet. Yeah, got to control the light and temperature and it ends okay. up uh, cooler is a little bit better than warmer. 67, 68 degrees is actually optimal oh, for letting people sleep. So those three things are actually the most important ones. Um, the other just to know is that as far as um, things like mattress firmness, pillows, etc., that's more personal preference. OK, whatever makes you comfortable. Yeah. So um I often joke, I'm sure I'll use it at least once Wednesday, but I met my wife doing a waterbed study in college. <laughs> I say that because everybody thought waterbeds would be better. And so people studied, you know, regular mattresses and waterbeds and bead beds and everything you can imagine. Yeah. And it ends up, uh, except for a hard floor, 
literally a cement floor, people will sleep fine on anything. So yeah. it's really more your preference for firmness, etc. Same thing with pillows. But that, uh, that temperature thing's a little counterintuitive. I would think that you want a nice, warm place to take a nap. Um, I know that, like, I... Oh, still I want a comforter. I, still want a comforter or something else for them to adjust the temperature for them. Ah, uh, okay. Right. So, so, the, so the, having a cold environment allows the, the user to determine so, what the comfort, comfortable temperature is. It's a lot yeah, easier to make yourself warmer than cooler. Yes, to self-regulate. Got it, got it. So you don't want it. a big, heavy comforter but you want something that they're going to be able to put over them to adjust sort of a little bit more refined. All right. Good to know. Well, one of the other parts of your uh, expertise is in transportation as, as the uh, former administrator of the um, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, one of the things I, I actually got to watch you um, speak to Congress about was about autonomous, autonomous vehicles. And I know that that's an industry that you're, you're in now. I, I wanted to share with you. I have a, I have a dream that my four year old son <laughs> will never drive a car in his entire life. Uh, my son does not share this dream, but, uh, <laughs> I have that dream nonetheless. Uh, tell me about, uh, your position on us handing, uh, our, the control of our cars over to robots. Um, <clears throat> I love, there's really three things that um, I think we're looking for autonomous vehicles to sort of change and truly transform mobility. And, and those three areas are safety, mobility, and also sustainability. And specifically around the safety side of it, we had, at least in the United States, 37,461 lives that were lost in 2016. Mm. And with... Um, Autonomous vehicles, we're looking at the opportunity to maybe get to zero. Uh, if you think about an autonomous vehicle that's operating correctly, it's not going to get drunk, drive too fast, fall asleep at the wheel, or be distracted by a phone. And we know that 94% of crashes are due to the human. Yeah. And literally, we have an opportunity to get pretty close to eliminating 94% of those crashes if we get the human out of the loop. And so safety folks understand what the opportunity is get very excited about what autonomous vehicles could mean for our future and saving mm -hmm. lives they also represent a huge opportunity to move people around so whether it's you know you being able to take your time back and be more productive in a vehicle mm -hmm. or elderly instead of giving up their keys they still have a way to get around or mm -hmm. the disabled community um, or kids who don't have a driver's yeah. license but you know could be in a vehicle in San Francisco, your kids could be in two different districts. And, you know, think about after school there when you have one car and you're trying to figure out who do I take where when. Uh, right. So mobility is huge. And then there's also the opportunity to have um, alternate fuel. So all electric fleets, for example. And so autonomous vehicles offer great opportunity um, it, for all of the excitement. What's really critical now is seeing where we can actually deliver on all those opportunities. Um for me, it's really mostly focused on the safety side, and I just think there's huge upside. We've got to make sure they're safe when they get on the road, uh, but the opportunity they represent, we know technology works to save lives, whether it's uh, seatbelts and airbags, electronic stability control, or all the new stuff that's out there with lane departure and, and blind spot monitoring and adaptive cruise control and automatic emergency braking. Technology really has been great. How do we bring this all together to make sure we get full advantage for society 
in the safety, mobility, and sustainability areas. Um, that's what a lot of people like me are so excited about with the future. Have you explored any of those uh, like philosophical questions about, like, say, I'm driving a car and I, you know, I lose control, or I I know I don't have enough room to to stop, and and I have to decide between hitting one person or hitting three people. these are kind of dorm room conversations, right? But, but uh, you know, do, do you think that, that computer programmers are really going to have to code into these machines the, the, uh, the tough decision of choosing one life over another or quantifying uh, the value of risk assessment? So I think what's interesting about that particular issue, those fall into the ethical considerations that people love to talk about. Right. And you're kind of alluding to a classic uh, issue that people call the trolley problem. Right. And right. You hit all those people in front of you or the woman and the baby in the side, et cetera. Um, right. <coughs> most people in this arena would tell you those are kind of non-issues. They're not. OK. Yeah. And, and a couple ways to think about it are one, those decisions are being made now and they're being made by humans in the moment without all the information available to them, (laughs) you know, mostly trying to preserve their own life more than anything. Um, And now you're talking about in an autonomous vehicle, the ability to control, to see 360, to have a a computer brain that's reacting super fast. Um, And so in most cases, these vehicles should never even be in that situation in the first place. So many of the ethical things that people love to bring up really should never exist in an autonomous world. Um, and, and ironically, in most cases now, we're finding it's humans that are hitting these, these autonomous vehicles when they're out on the road testing and doing things, you know, and so that 94% of crashes are human related. They're still human related, even involving autonomous vehicles. Right. And so a lot of those ethics problems really kind of move away. Now, there is a way to think about that, that taking it out of the hands of the driver, you are putting it into the hands of coders. Um, to sort of make certain decisions, but they're not just doing it, you know, on their own, flip a coin. Um, right. As I say, you've got vehicle capabilities that are significantly so much different than a human behind the wheel. And just the fact that you get to, you know, sort of make value judgments to decide how you're going to answer those is way better than in the moment, really almost by a flip of the coin, deciding which way a human's going. It's so much better to have control over those. So, um, well, and, and yeah, as you program it, you can anticipate the capabilities of the vehicle. Exactly, because you're the one who knows right. how fast it can stop, how quickly it can steer, what direction right. it's going in. Uh, you can see further than humans. Humans going to look right, and there's all kinds of stuff on the left you should know about. Uh, you know, an autonomous vehicle is going to have all those capabilities that a human does not currently have in those situations. Yeah. I got to say, whenever I'm talking to somebody about doing something that seems really dangerous, like rock climbing or even getting on an airplane, the, the answer is, yeah, well, it's way safer than getting in the car, as if that's the argument you make to say that that other activity is not very dangerous. But maybe we should shift the conversation and say, hey, maybe we should make driving a car not so dangerous. Yes. In fact, again, I'm a former NASA scientist, so I've worked a lot in aerospace aviation. And every pilot will tell you, because they know this, that it's more dangerous to drive to the airport than to <laughs> fly their plane. Right, right. Well, and man, let's, let's... Yeah, in spite of the fact that you're talking about a little metal tube up in the air going, you know, thousands of miles <coughs> across the country and, and extremely fast and, you know, mile high, um, 
what are you doing? And, and it's like society just, we've got some of these, um, thoughts, images, beliefs backwards. Right. Yeah. Uh, and ironically, again, uh, we, you know, the last eight years, there's not been a fatality in a major commercial flight. And yet, you know, again, 37,461 just last year in car crashes. And mm. so, you know, it's amazing how much we've been able to do with aviation. What we really need to be thinking about, what have we learned there that we can apply to the automotive realm? And a lot of that is the autonomous vehicle stuff. How do we use, how do we leverage technology to buy us safety um, that we can't get? And by the way, this is a classic. You know, humans are just not safe. What do you do? Technology saves us so often when we try and come up. So whether it's seatbelts or airbags, electronic mm -hmm. stability control, um, you know, changing human behavior can be very, very difficult. And we look to technology as providing the solution. And autonomous vehicles, just the 100% solution. It's awesome. Dr. Roscott, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this. Uh, both of both of these messages, uh, but particularly sleep, is something that I really want our our community to hear about. Hear hear uh, the the expertise that you have, and, and appreciate the opportunity to send that out. Um, if you are listening to this before Wednesday, February 28th, I invite you to go to uh, see Dr. Rosekind speak at 7 p.m. at Cabrillo College in the Crocker Theater as part of our speaker series that we do with Cabrillo College, Gateway School, Mount Madonna, and, and of course, York School. Um, and Dr. Rosekind, if, if people want to dig in a little deeper, do you have any recommendations for them? Yes, um, sleepfoundation.org. Okay. Uh, that's the National Sleep Foundation website is a great place to start. Uh, and people interested in uh, later start times, I think that's it. Laterstarttimes.org, I believe, is theirs as well. I do have it on a slide for Wednesday. Uh, cool. But the National Sleep Foundation, you can look it up, sleepfoundation.org. Great resource with information for sleep, sleep disorders, teenagers, uh, shift workers, jet lag. Um, great content there for as a resource for folks. The science is solid. Let's work on the culture. That's really the biggest challenge. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosekind. Thank you. Bye now.